Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Coast to Coasties podcast. I know my voice sounds a little bit different today, and that's because I'm borrowing my friend's gaming microphone. <laughs> I did not bring my microphone to A school, but I did want to get into discussing that, that I am officially at A school. So I departed my unit a couple months ago. I haven't had time to record a lot of episodes, but thankfully I've been able to backfill them to keep in line with our schedule, to keep providing you guys the best content that you all keep asking me for. And what that has given me time to do is go out and source myself around here. There's tons of resources here in Training Center Yorktown, enough that I can make an entire episode just on Training Center Yorktown with the amount of people that are here. But that's not in today's scope. I just want to give a quick lowdown that I'm in MSTA school. It is a fantastic program, and I definitely... When I get MSTs on here, I'm telling you, you're going to really enjoy the content that's going to be coming out of it. And thankfully, I have amazing classmates, too, that were more than happy to volunteer to be on this episode and share their different experiences from mine as a non-rate, because we come from literally all across the board in this MST class. And today, I'm joined with someone that a lot of you have been asking about on my Instagram chat feeds. You all said you wanted a surfman from the surf community. Well, I do not have contact to a surfman. However, I have contact with a non-rate who worked at a surf station and can give in-depth detail about said surf station. So I'm here today with my classmate and a school roommate, Sterling Opsall. He's here to introduce himself. Uh, I'm Sterling Opsall. I am from Seattle, Washington. Uh, I've been in the Coast Guard about two years now, coming up on my two-year mark in March 16th. Uh, I've been at Station Umqua for about a year and a half. Uh, it's on the Oregon coast. It's a surf station. I loved it there. Uh, I would do it again. But I'm here at MSJA School right now. And yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. Explore the, the ways of uh, being an MST. So we have a lot to pack in this discussion, but we got to start from the beginning. Why did you decide to join the Coast Guard? You said you're from Washington. Was it the influence of the Coast Guard being around you, or was it some other life factors that drew your interest into wanting to join the Coast Guard? Good question. Uh, actually, I really didn't have any influence personally by the Coast Guard. I never really interacted with them. But my, my mom was in the Army for 20 years, and her being in the Army really like influenced me to like the military lifestyle. And I was kind of interested in that, but my mom really said that if she could do it over again, her entire career, she joined the Coast Guard. So that, that was a huge influence for me. So uh, flash forward about four months, six months later, I contacted my recruiter uh, in, in the Seattle office, and here I am now, two years later. Uh, I would do it over again uh, if I had a chance. I would definitely join the Coast Guard, go serve station. Fantastic opportunity. Uh, I recommend it for other people as well. So you mentioned your mother was in the army. I imagine PCS orders, you know, have never changed in forever. You probably moved around a lot growing up. How did that influence your upbringing and just the amount of cultures you were taking in from all the different places you went? And also share with us where you've been. Well, that's a great question, actually. Uh, moving around throughout my entire childhood had a huge impact on my, my, uh, my upbringing. I've I've met a lot of different people. I've lived in a lot of cool different places. Uh, I think it's definitely impacted of who I am today. I've lived, uh, the first place I can remember is uh, 
Fort Sam Houston in Texas. Uh, I was really young there. Don't really remember a ton about it. But then we moved from Fort Sam Houston to Hawaii. And that was that was really fun. I remember have a lot of fun memories there. Uh, been to the Tripler Army Hospital dozens of times for injuries as a kid. You know, uh, broken arms, pneumonia, stepping on glass and nails, just being a kid. Uh, favorite injury. I know it might be funny funny thing to have a favorite injury but uh, i got bit by an eel a moray eel on the beach in waikiki and I have a scar to a scar to prove it from hawaii we went to to missouri kansas city missouri for a few years on the uh, ammunition plant in kansas city really fun place a lot of uh, hiking and like animal experience i guess you could say with uh, reptiles and stuff that's where I got it from. And then from Missouri, uh, we went to Texas again, but this time to San Antonio. Did about three years there. Uh, loved it. Met a lot of my great uh, childhood friends there. Uh, the schools were awesome. Missed the schools, for sure. My favorite middle school was there. And then from Texas, San Antonio, we went to uh, Washington, where I lived the rest of my life, basically. Probably six, seven years in Seattle, Washington. Uh, uh, Washington's my favorite place so far. Absolutely love that state. Gorgeous. Tons of stuff to do there if it comes to, to fishing, to uh, events, to partying if you want. Yeah, just tons of stuff to do in Washington. And then from Washington, I enlisted in the Coast Guard. Uh, I got stationed in Oregon, obviously, at the Station Upqua on the Oregon Coast. Loved it there. Fantastic. Oregon's just like Washington. I was felt just at home there. And then now I'm at A school. Can you talk through briefly when you saw your recruiters? Did you have the option to guarantee district for District 13? Or did you just go to boot camp hoping you'd get D13 and you got lucky? Uh, yeah, actually, my recruiter did bring up guarantee districts. And I asked if I could come back to the Pacific Northwest. And he said yes. So, yeah, I took that opportunity for guarantee district 13. And then I, got, I was lucky enough to get a uh, to get Oregon, which is pretty close to my family. So I was really happy about that. So for the viewers listening in who are still in their application process for the Coast Guard, if you really like where you're coming from and you want to come back to the region, just know what that guaranteed district. So District 13, where Sterling comes from, encompasses all of Washington, all of Oregon. So just because you're from Seattle doesn't mean you're going back to Seattle. You go anywhere within that district. However, you're still likely, unless you're in a giant AOR of a district within distance to make short uh, leave travels to go home. And it's not as much of a burden as flying across the country. That's the benefit. And your, you know, regions are kind of similar. I mean, you got exceptions, but New England, it's pretty much the same coastline-ish. I know Maine's pretty unique. I love Maine, but uh, yeah, the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, very similar. So he was able to still go back to his home set in an environment. So that's just an interesting thing. You got to make sure you ask your recruiter about it if you want it though, because they're not going to willingly tell you that, but you can always ask them if it's available for you. Anyways, back to Sterling. When you ended up joining the Coast Guard at boot camp, did you have any preference to what you wanted? Did you have any clue? Because you said that you went to the recruiter on your mother's influence to join the Coast Guard, but did you have an idea of, one, what rate you wanted to be eventually at the time, and two, coming out of boot camp, what type of role you wanted as a non-rate? Did you want to go on a cutter, a small boat station, 
uh, engineer and fireman or a deck seaman? Just fill us in on that. Good question, actually. Yeah. Joining the Coast Guard, I kind of wanted to work with helicopters. I thought maybe being a pilot would be cool. I didn't know you had to be an officer, actually, to be a pilot. So that was kind of a blunder on my part. Uh, but then it was 50-50 AET or MST. And eventually I joined MST. And I, no regrets. But uh, yeah, that, those are my two biggest choices, joining uh, make sure if you are in the applicant stage, definitely look into what the rates do and like all of the ins and outs of each rate to make sure you you know you're picking the right one for you. Yeah, being a non-rate, I didn't really understand. Uh, first of all, I didn't even know surf stations existed at all. So uh, when I got those orders, I was completely blindsided. But uh, I yeah I I chose to be a seaman. Uh, I didn't really understand the differences between a seaman and a fireman at the time, but. Uh, don't regret it. Love working deck side, uh, doing doing stuff deck side and working on boats and stuff. That's really fun. But being at a surf station, you kind of get the experience of both being a fireman and a, a seaman because, you know, you're down with the engineers helping out anyways. So you, you'll get both experiences if you go to a surf station. And then just to piggyback off what you were saying, to people that don't necessarily know what a surf station is, can you fill us in on what a surf station is and why the Coast Guard has them? Because they're very special niche units. And they actually lead into special niche careers within the Coast Guard itself. So why do we even have these surf stations? What's the purpose of them relative to other small boat stations around the country? Yeah, I'd be happy to fill you in on that. Uh, so surf stations are small boat stations usually located on rivers uh, on, on the coastline. Uh, there's a lot on the, the Pacific Coast. I think there's a few on the uh, the East Coast, maybe one or two in the Great Lakes, if I'm not mistaken but so surf stations uh they exist because rivers meet the ocean and create like very dangerous conditions and so they need specifically trained and designed crews and boats to to operate in these conditions 47s are the assets we use they're controversial i like them a lot of people hate the 47s but i think they're a lot of fun Uh, you mentioned some of the career uh, opportunities too yeah so I didn't know surfmen existed until I joined the Coast Guard. Surfmen are a underappreciated, I think, asset in the Coast Guard. I think a lot of, they get a lot of hate sometimes for being a little egotistical, but it's uh, their job is very unique and very challenging. You know, being the the coxswain on a forty-seven with just a few crew members and making life-changing decisions on the fly is pretty impressive, honestly. So, if you like a challenge and you want to go go search and rescue. Uh, surf stations and the the surf program might be right for you. So basically what you're saying though is with the surf station, the primary mission is search and rescue. And, you know, there's all kinds of missions of the Coast Guard. I've gone over this in prior episodes across the board. But if you're someone who's really intent on making a career out of the search and rescue portion of the Coast Guard, I want to save lives. That's the job I want to do. Surfman kind of leads into that realm that you're looking for for instance and the other cool thing about the surfman community from what i understand you can correct me if i'm wrong on this is that i had a surfman chief in uh boot camp who was teaching seamanship classes his name's chief veritas and he said he was a surfman and he's a chief and he's gone underway overnight a total of about three days in his entire 18, 19 year career at that time. Now he's over 20 years. He could be retired at this point. I have no clue, but he, he basically said 
because of your special qualifications in that field, they want to keep you in that field. So they're not going to end up putting you on a cutter later in your career either. So if you don't want to be on a cutter for a couple of years, because most BMs have the most sea time in the Coast Guard required, which means doing a tour or two or three on a cutter in their career. And even if you're a small boat station person, you still got to meet that sea time requirement to advance to those ranks. But surfmen are exempt. Is that how that works? Ooh, this question might be out of my expertise, but uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, you are correct. I don't think you need to have uh, sea time to make uh, to make at least up to BM one. You you may need uh, sea time to make chief. I'm not exactly sure about that. So the qualification process usually goes uh, coxswain OD first as a BM three and a BM two, and then once you make surf, you can make BM one. Uh, I do remember Chief Vritis. He was really cool. Uh, he lived in Hawaii, actually, the same time we lived there. So <laughs> I was unaware of that until I talked to him. That was pretty cool. Yeah, they always say it's a small Coast Guard. I mean, I have no doubts that you two would have been on the Hawaii in the same time. I think he even did two tours in Hawaii. But what is the average length of time? Because surfing's a big qualification. So it's not just something you're going to show up to the unit and get in a year or two. It's a very lengthy, long process. And I think that's why it's so specialized and niche of a field in the Coast Guard is, can you fill us in with how long the qualification timeline roughly takes for these qualified people that are surfmen? As far as I'm aware of our station, it depends on the surf station you go to because more surf stations uh, get different conditions and more opportunity to actually train. Station Umqua has really good training environment. Uh, the, the Umqua bar is basically it perfectly designed to do training on the the blue and the orange range if you're adamant about it and you work hard you could probably get in, in two to three years but you you have to get your coxswain and od qualification first those usually come at the same time and then you get your heavy weather coxswain qualification i think that's a c school as well and then you can start working on your surf qualification so uh there's there's a little bit of politics involved but generally yeah if you're working hard probably two to three years Shorter than I thought for length of it, but it still is pretty intense qual, and that's why, because it's so long to train people that they want them in that realm permanently <laughs> after they get it. So going into day-to-day -day life at the surf station, could you walk me through a normal day, let's say, with no emergency search and rescue call to start out, and then walk me through a day that okay, this call just came through, you need to go on emergency rescue, walk me through that process afterwards. But let's start with the normal day and then go into the rescue mission afterwards. Right, so yeah, normal day at Station Umqua. Uh, you're going to wake up and do muster, breakfast and muster for the plan of the day. You're going to establish who's doing what, the duty the duty sections, uh, your your watches as a non-rate, you're going to have a watch that day. If it's either going to be your your comms watch standard or your tower watch standard or first boat, second boat. Uh, once that's decided, it usually goes into to maintenance or, or two-boat training usually. I know there's a big push to do more two-boat training uh, when I was there. And then after after two-boat training, usually a little a lot of little studying gets done for, for qualifications for watch standards or engineers. Uh, then it rolls around into lunch and you get an hour break for lunch to do you know, usually whatever you want. Maybe some more training happens after lunch. It really depends. Uh, a lot, a lot of maintenance actually. You know, uh, 47s break down more more than we like. That's why we have 
great engineers, fantastic engineers, you know, shout out MK3 Wertheimer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, after, after lunch, so a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of fun. And then, uh, uh, watches usually switch out around, around lunch depends on the, the sunset. I know our station did recall. I don't know if every station does recall. Uh, recalls when like, uh, if you're not on like a, a mandatory watch, like a comms watch or a first boat, you can uh, go home if you're allowed to. That's a normal day. So if there was a SAR case, so first boat is always on duty. And once they hear that SAR alarm, they're going to drop what they're doing. They're going to get dressed down in the, the proper PPE, you know, dry suit, Mustang, whatever the environment calls for. And they're, they're going to go and start the boat. Engineers and the non-rates are going to go start the boat immediately, get everything prepped, make sure everything's ready. Uh, the OD is going to go into the comms room, get like that first five information, uh, get like a good sense of what's going on for the case. And then once they got that, they're going to start, uh, they're going to go on the boat and, you know, go save some lives, you know. Comms watch standard is basically an OS4. They're they're doing like the first five. They're, they're maintaining comms with uh, probably someone who's having like the worst day of their lives. So those non-rates are some of the, some of the coolest people in the Coast Guard, honestly, doing those comms watch standards at those surfs. So the first five five questions you want to ask the, a distressed vessel. So the first five go position, number of people on board, description of vessel, nature of distress, and then you're going to ask the boat that's in trouble to put on live check-ins. With those first five, you can run any search and rescue case with maybe a few exceptions. But uh, yeah, you get those first five and get that boat underway and you're good. So it seems like this all happens in a really fast time. Time is of the essence in all of this. In any search and rescue case, but especially in this heavy weather conditions, I know I have swam a couple of years and I've done real life ocean simulations back when I was a cutter rescue swimmer. Different from the ASTs, don't get those confused. Cutter rescue swimmer, anyone can be a cutter rescue swimmer. ASTs are highly trained in the Coast Guard. But... What I wanted to ask you about that is, you know, I'm someone that's trained to swim and tread in the surf, and I could barely, you know, stay afloat in this situation. How is someone that's in distress of this boat and nasty surf, how are they faring trying to give you this information in a high-stress environment? How are you taking all this info in, getting it ready to go get them, and what is that situation like on scene? Yeah, so being on the boat and processing this information, uh, it breaks people break down into roles, basically. So the coxswain is observing everybody, make sure everybody's safe, they're doing the roles correctly, and obviously operating the boat and navigating. And then the non-rates and the, the boat crew are, are looking for safety things. They are relaying information to the coxswain. They're talking on the radio to both sector, maybe a helicopter, and definitely the station. Uh, the engineer is making sure like the equipment are good, the boat's running okay, and then also the engineer is doing uh, uh, the other stuff, you know, like navigating, working the chart plotter, safety stuff. All that just makes sure the the whole crew just functions as a, a perfectly, you know, life-saving service, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's something that's important to highlight because, again, I didn't know what a surf station was. You didn't know what a surf station was before we joined the Coast Guard. And I think it's especially important because... When you're trying to make a whole picture about whether the Coast Guard's right for you or not, you're left with this wondering idea of, well, how do I want my career to go? And to be quite frank and honest, it's very, very tough to get all that information in before you sign the line with the recruiter saying, 
oh, I predict my career is going to go this way. There's a lot of factors out of your control. Number one, mainly being that you don't even know what type of game you're going to go to as a non-rate to set yourself up for your future career. But if you want to put yourself in a niche field, what you're going to have to do is, from what I've seen, and again, we're going to have an A-school discussion here in the next episode, but what I have seen is that you're going to need to do really well in classes and get your grades if you want to set yourself up for those career billets because a lot of BMs that I've talked to in the A school classes, they really want to be surfmen. It's a very great, positive, tight knit community that people have a lot of pride in. And I think when you have pride in your work, there's something to be said about that is that you're motivated to show up every day because you know that you're making an impact. You join the military and you're saving lives. What could be better than that? I mean, that's like the greatest achievement at the end of the day is knowing you saved that life. So could you just attest to that from your? sense on the sense of pride that you found working at the surf station absolutely being at a surf station it's a very fulfilling job like you when you run a case and you come back you feel as if you know your work means something because you can see the results the surf community kind of gets a bad rep but uh i it's very, it's a, it's, a, it's a family, you know, it's a very prideful family. And we, we take pride in what we do because, you know, a lot of the Coast Guard doesn't under, understand really uh, what goes into to making these surf stations run. I, I know like recently, uh, a lot of stations are kind of running low on, on run rates. And so people are running or these stations are running, you know, bare bone crews and running back to back first posts. And so uh, I, I think they kind of deserve to be a little bit prideful, you know, of, of what goes into the, the long hours, the staying staying and working on a 47 for hours and hours to make sure it's it's operational. And so we don't have to cover like uh, 50, 60 miles of AOR for just a one boat crew. Um, yeah, I think they deserve, deserve to be prideful. And then just another point to touch up on is because it's not just bosun mates that are at these surf stations. As you said, non-rates mainly handle the comms watches, but... You also have MKs that are there fixing the boats, and you even shout out one of your MK3s. So what is the MK's role in the surf station? Can they also be niche within the surf community, or is it to them just kind of another billet in their rotation cycle? Whereas BMs get the surfman qual, and they kind of can set themselves up to stay in the surf community. How can an MK try to stay in the surf community to the best of your knowledge, if you know? That is a good question, and it is highly controversial because surfmen get surf pay, right? The hazard pay, and the non-rates and the engineers do not. And that's uh, that's been brought up a lot by I know commands and non-rates and uh, and surfmen alike too. But uh, the engineers, they are very important. You know, they they know the forty sevens in and out. Uh, if the boat breaks, they can fix it almost almost immediately i don't know if they have opportunities to stay in the surf community i know i know some can if they have families or stuff like that i would love to see a a surfman mk that would be amazing (laughs) i I, in my opinion uh but i don't know if many commands allow them to get their cox and pqs if at all but uh yeah i loved all my mks uh i think they're all awesome people and awesome at their job very highly qualified people I think underrated for sure. Well, then I'll make that a point of reference too, is that if someone that has more influence than two non-rates talking on a podcast here can bring that up to their commands, just to 
give non-rates and MKs working at these surf stations, along with the surfmen, the hazard pay they deserve, that would be greatly appreciated for the fleet wide. It's just because they're all on those boats doing the same job and they're all feeling the stress and, you know, they're all going through the same hazards and the same surf. So just for whoever's listening and can make that difference, you know, it would go a long way if you could bring it up to your command so that the word gets out there more for non-rates and MKs and basically everyone supporting the surfmen that are around the surfmen themselves to get those extra uh, assets as well too, because they fully deserve it. No one works less hard than the next guy, <laughs> especially like you're saying with the short manage right now at those stations, you know, cutters, stations alike, short man and on non-rates. That's why they came out with that new order recently that all non-rates now, regardless of what you're going, have to stay four months of their unit. So that's something to keep in mind too, is unless you sign a boot to a contract as of this recording on March 3rd, 2023, you currently have to do four months of your unit, even if you want to go CS or OS and you did not sign a boot to a agreement, four months across the board before you put your name on a school list, just to clarify that. Another benefit for you, because of your interest in hobbies, you have a very uh, interesting personality side to you that we have not discussed in depth yet. You touched on it briefly, the reptiles. However, you're really big into snakes and owning reptiles and taking care of them. So I know you have childhood stories. I'd like you to touch up on those for us and then get into your passion of currently owning snakes, dealing with the snake community worldwide, because it's quite an interesting story that I think people would love to hear about you. But just getting back to transitioning into this discussion is that surfmen go home every night, that they're not on duty. It's a landside-based rating, and you're going into the MST world, which just guarantees you're going to be home even more than that. You'll be able to take care of your reptiles appropriately. So, could you just touch on how you got started in this love for snakes and other reptiles, and we'll go from there? Oh boy, where do I even begin? Yeah, uh, reptiles and the Coast Guard, my two biggest passions right now in life. I I started loving reptiles at an early age, probably in Missouri when uh, we just would find big big rat snakes in our front yard, and I would go catch them and freak my mom out. Or uh, going out and finding box turtles, just chilling in the forest. That was awesome. We would go hunt for reptiles almost every day, all day. <laughs> in Texas, waking up and watching Steve Irwin on the TV every day at 7 a.m. for, for 30 minutes before I went to school. Uh, rest in peace, Steve Irwin. <laughs> but yeah, those big influences in my life. Yeah, right now, I, uh, I have five reptiles. I have four green tree pythons and a ball python. The ball python, which I bought from another coastie, actually, a BM2 Storm. He's a surfman, actually. He's stationed at Tillamook. Uh, right now, my current plans are to start uh, collecting some more reptiles and see what happens with uh, maybe some future breeding projects, too. All right, we've got a lot to unpack out of this statement. <laughs> There's a lot to discuss on this. So you've been into reptiles for a while. What is the process? Because reptiles you know they stay in their uh, enclosures and they don't need to be fed as much or given as much attention as dogs and cats so ideally it they make great companions for coasties because you know a lot of coasties might have duty and especially you know at small boat stations the two on two off three on three off schedule 
uh, well, the two-on-two off slide in weekends. Um, you might not need to feed your ball python for a week once it's an adult. So, you know, they don't need to be constantly loved and handled all the time. They actually prefer not to be, as you stated. So, can you just walk us through some of the uh, etiquette with handling snakes to start out in case there's another coasty interested in potentially getting snakes? Yeah, as you said, snakes are solitary creatures. They don't really like to be interacted with, although they they will definitely tolerate it, especially with uh, some more captive snakes like ball pythons or a maybe a different snake like a, a carpet python. But some etiquette for handling them. Yeah, uh, definitely know your snake's body language. They, they will definitely let you know how they're feeling. Generally, they, if they're feeling stressed or uh, upset, I don't want to say like angry because snakes don't really get angry. You know, they don't have that like uh, higher emotional process that mammals do. But if they're feeling defensive or stressed, they'll let you know. They'll, they'll kind of like back their head up and form like an S pattern in their, in their body and let you know like, hey, I'm, I'm feeling a little stressed here. So definitely, like, look out for that, and then uh, be be gentle with them. Be slow. You know, they uh, they're very sensitive to to heat and touch, and well, we're pretty hot animals, and we like to touch things. So that doesn't really mesh that very well with reptiles, especially reptiles that can uh, sense heat with uh, their uh, they have special heat sensing pits in their in their head, and that's just specifically for snakes. Uh, I could get into like lizards and tortoises and tons of other different reptiles but yeah for snakes uh definitely know the species you're getting if you do decide to get a snake uh ball pythons excellent pets uh corn snakes milk snakes excellent pets uh i mentioned that i have green tree pythons not the best pet you know they're very uh they're not aggressive i don't like calling reptiles aggressive but they're very food motivated they love eating so they're gonna they're gonna try to strike at everything that looks like food and unfortunately our fingers kind of look like baby mice <laughs> most of the time. So, yeah, definitely know what you're getting into if you do decide to uh, to get a snake. There's tons of resources online, so make sure you, you're you very well. And then two points I'd like to touch on with that, too. Snake handling gloves and, you know, the poles you can use to keep distance away. Essential, you know, starting out, especially where you're learning how your snakes work and interacting with them. Other thing, too, you mentioned at one point that you were interested in a Komodo Island viper. Now, that is a venomous species of snake. So what you need to make sure and be careful of as the viewer and audience listening in is that if you end up going to a state that has pretty free rules, like let's say you get stationed in Houston, Texas at your unit, you're absolutely fine to get a Komodo Island viper. But then you end up getting stationed in San Francisco, California, and they have laws that say you cannot have a venomous species of snake. So would you mind attesting to that, just filling us in on uh, what you should be aware of transitioning with your snakes across the country, PCSing? Uh, absolutely. First of all, I want to say you should not get a venomous reptile for your first snake or reptile at all. <laughs> that's, a, that's probably not a good idea. However, side note to that, there are venomous snakes that you can get and that are totally fine, such as a hognose snake. They're technically venomous. They're rear fanged. But they, it's like getting a bee sting if they bite you and inject you with venom. So it's not going to be a problem. But uh, yeah, there are definitely certain laws that prevent you from owning certain snakes, even non-venomous snakes. And let's say Florida, uh, you cannot own an anaconda in Florida. That's illegal, you know. It, 
it can if it escapes it can threaten the everglades and the environment yeah definitely know like your local uh, laws and regulations uh as far as i'm aware you can own a ball python in probably every country in the world <laughs> so uh yeah corn snakes too very uh very good start i recommend a corn snake i used to have one fantastic bet and then just another point I want to touch on too is I am huge into every passion that anyone has in the networking. Work in the networks of your resources and your people. Now, obviously, if I look online and I say where to buy ball pythons, uh, probably local reptile store is going to come up or something like that. But you've ended up getting into some very specialty dealers that do select breeding that make the snakes color variety very, very rare. And that, of course, increases the value greatly. And that's, you know, you're going to get into breeding and hopefully do that yourself. But what I want you to focus this question on is what is your advice if you're trying to inform someone how to be better at networking with their communities? You know, it doesn't have to specifically relate to snakes, even though you can relate yours to snakes because that's your passion. But just how to network better because everyone's always looking for how to reach out better. You know, it seems simple to just keep cold calling. I mean, that's what I do. I cold call a lot of people until they come on the show. <laughs> but just a general overview on how you would network better based on your experiences with networking with the snake community. That is a great question. Yeah, I can attest to that for at least the reptile part of networking. First one is uh Reptile Expos, that's a fantastic way to, to meet new people and different breeders. You know, you go there and everybody's super friendly. They, they, you can tell they're very passionate about their animals. Uh, just don't be afraid, you know, talk to people and, uh, you know, pick their mind about stuff. I met the breeder of two of the snakes that I own right now, Tucker from Purple Rain Reptiles. He is a phenomenal green tree python breeder and resource that I have. Uh, I, I bought two of his baby uh, Cyclops green tree pythons. They're doing phenomenal thanks to him and uh, i've met a lot of awesome people there uh, another resource is uh, actually instagram a lot of uh business owners not even just reptile owners have an instagram you know and uh i i learned not to be afraid just to dm people and ask about like you know their, their future projects uh animals they might have available and just you know tips and tricks maybe they have because you know they some of these people have been in the business for 20 years so they have invaluable knowledge that they're often happy to share with you so yeah don't be afraid to communicate with people i would say too to that instagram point is i was always initially before i started podcasting against instagram i didn't have one at all and it's really easy to get sucked into vortex between instagram stories for the people you follow and the short little real tiktok videos they have but you can also utilize it for your business and networking too. You don't have to click on those little stories above. You don't have to click on the reels. You can focus your account and tailor it to the people that you want to get in touch and contact with. And that oftentimes snowballs. You know, you find five people and they all know five people each. And then all of a sudden, you know, 25 more people in addition to those five people. So it's kind of a snowballing effect too. Next question I would ask you about is just a personal question because in case I get into reptile ownership, this is a big one that you're going to find online if you you know, look around, is how do you feel about the typical, what you'd see at the pet shop, you know, buy the tank and have them live in the tank or creating that ecological living bio environment. Uh, not sure the exact name of it. Maybe you can fill us in on that, but I know it's a lot more work. 
However, is it a lot better for your lizard or your snake or your turtle to live in said environment when it's a living organic environment with microbes and living plants? I think the term you're talking about is a bioactive setup. Yep. I am a fan of bioactive setups. If you know how to do it properly, I think they can be a phenomenal environment for your animal and really make them thrive. Speaking to the pet shops and like buying like enclosures there and like, you know, one enclosure fits all, you know, that can that can work for some species, but I think it's better to, you know, a bigger enclosure is almost always better for for almost all animals. Uh, so I, I would definitely like, you know, see uh, what animal you're buying, you know, go on YouTube and look up like best enclosure for blank animal and you'll find tons of resources there. Uh, I I keep my green tree pythons in, you know, PVC cages that are about, you know, two foot cubes and that makes them thrive that lets them thrive uh but you know different species will have different requirements you know like green tree pythons are arboreal so they kind of like that uh that ability to climb but let's say you get a leopard gecko they're not really going to need climbing opportunities and more like a, a horizontal landscape approach for them to be happier don't be afraid to you know boil your animal a little bit you know like get a big enclosure a lot of places to hide you know, spend a little money on a living creature you're taking care of. Well, thank you again for sharing all this knowledge about your experience with reptiles. It's definitely something I'm interested in after A school is getting into. I probably will start with a leopard gecko. So nice that you touched on that. I mean, snakes, don't get freaked out by them. Anyone seen the wrestler Jake the Snake? He's known to handle ball pythons pretty well. Very tame, docile animal. Just don't aggravate them. They won't bite. Uh, and then thank you for transitioning and relating it to the Coast Guard too, is, you know, not every Coastie is going to own a snake. That's not what I'm getting at here. However, there's a lot of Coasties that I personally talked to here in the past couple of weeks, surprisingly, that are interested in owning reptiles and snakes more than I've ever seen in my life. I come from Maine where that's just not too many people are into snakes that I've met in Maine. Seems a lot of people from around the air, uh, country are interested in reptile ownership. So, just important to let you guys know because you know, especially people like Sterling that have experience with reptiles, want to make sure all reptiles taken care of properly and appropriately, so that they're not being abused or mistreated because they'll, they'll get sick if they're in a stressful environment. We don't want any of that to go on. So, thanks for touching up on that. Would you have any other advice you would give to prospective Coasties who are thinking about joining the Coast Guard, like just a general overview perspective from your time that you've been in the Coast Guard? What would you give to the person that's thinking about joining or who's very new to the Coast Guard, especially those people who are getting ready to sign with their recruiters? Any advice you give them now looking back in your two-year-plus career? I'd say if you're thinking about joining, uh, definitely, definitely join. I think it's it'll be a great opportunity for you to, to learn some things, to see new places, to to meet new people. It's a fantastic opportunity. Definitely take opportunity that the Coast Guard gives you. You know, there's tuition assistance, there's, uh, you know, school opportunities, like sea school opportunities once you get rated and stuff like that. And you're, you know, your, your fellow Coasties have a ton of knowledge that you might not even know. You know, your, your BM1 might be an expert in, in something you would never even thought about until you ask him. So definitely, if you're thinking about joining, I highly recommend it. I would do it again in a heartbeat and, you know, talk to your fellow Coasties and ask about their expertise. And thank you. Consistently reach out. That's the name of the game. You don't know something, you want to know it, reach out, use your resources around you. 
constantly what we've been saying on here. So thank you very much for bringing it up, Sterling. And thank you for being on the show. We really enjoyed having you. Uh, you know, I'm pitching for you to stay, stay around for a second episode here, talk about MSTA school, our time here. I think that I got a lot of people that have been asking me about MST stuff too. So I think that'd be great. You know, bring some other people too, maybe, but you know, we'll see how it goes. And I really hope you stick around for the second episode, but thanks for highlighting the surf community and to the viewers. Thank you again for listening to another awesome episode. If you have any questions about the surf community, or especially this one, if you have any questions about reptile ownership or snake handling, look up Sterlingo on Instagram. I'll have him spell that out for you. Definitely reach out to me if you have any questions on the surf community or reptiles in general. I would be happy to answer any questions you have. My Instagram is the Sterlingo. T-H-E-S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G-O. And just like that, begin your network journey. So thank you again for listening, everyone. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode where we're talking about the life at MSTA school and basically a school at Yorktown in general. I can give you tips and advice on that stuff too. So it's going to be an exciting episode. And I think a lot of you will really benefit from it, especially those boot to A people going in. Get to know some A school info before you go to boot camp because you're going right to A school afterwards. So definitely check out that next episode coming out in a couple weeks. Thank you again and have a great day.